Welcome to Money Talks. My name is Mike Campbell. I'm glad you're with us. Hey, there's so much going on that I've always have to sit there and select what I think you need to hear every single week. Well, I'm really pleased with today's show. Why? Because I've got David Morgan. I've got a ton of questions about silver, and David's been considered for years one of the leading silver advocates, but he also writes a ton about what's going on in the energy market, the whole renewable space. Why? Of course, because, for example, silver is going to be of big use. Silver is going to help electrify the world. Well, where are we at with that? I'm going to talk, as I say, with David about that. Uh, as I say, many other things to, to hit on. I've got Ozzy Jurek talking about, hey, there, China has put up the search engine for Canadian real estate on the biggest Chinese search engine has exploded the people looking for Canadian real estate. We'll talk a little bit more about that and get the low down there. Of course, I've got Victor Adair batting cleanup. And I've got Aaron Dunn from Keystone Financial. Aaron and Ryan Irvine provide us with our small cap and our large cap portfolio now, the World Outlook portfolio that we do every year. We've been doing it, I don't know, well over a dozen years with them. Never fail to get double digits. Can't say, I can't promise that'll happen again, but I like our chances. But I told Aaron, can you come on just before the end of the year? Give me some specific stock recommendations if you're looking for solid growth and for dividend yield. As I say, all of that coming your way, of course, plus a goofy. Plus I've got the shocking stat of the week, quote of the week, Bottom line, I am glad you're here. But first, last week Elton John tweeted the following statement. All my life I've tried to use music to bring people together, yet it saddens me to see how misinformation is being used to divide our world. I've decided to no longer use Twitter, given their recent change in policy, which will allow misinformation to flourish unchecked. Well, I have to say that actually I haven't experienced any change in Twitter since Elon Musk took over. Now, I still look at the same economists, financial analysis, that kind of stuff. And once in a while, I'll even stray into political commentary, although not very often because I find it predictable. I did, however, look at both Matt Tiabi and Barry Weiss reporting on the Twitter files. But for now, I'll take other people's word that there's been a marked increase in racist tweets and misinformation. Although it reminds me of the old line, nowadays, there's more smut and violence on social media, although sometimes you actually have to hunt around to find it. That's certainly the case on Twitter today. I mean, given we get to choose who we follow, and even if we came across something on a feed that spews misinformation or racist tweets, we don't have to read them. We can go to another feed, much like we do when reading or watching any other form of media. I mean, this may shock some people, but you know what? I don't need any help from the federal government or the CRTC to protect me from misinformation. My suggestion for those people who do take offense to what they see on Twitter as any other social media, hey, move on. As for misinformation, I'm afraid I still have a big problem with that because there's always a one-sided problem. I mean, there's an insensitivity to the fact that it goes across the political spectrum. I mean, the same people like Sir Elton didn't seem bothered by the litany of misinformation regarding COVID. No, and there was a ton of that. But no, now that it's been politicized in one direction and they're worried that's going to reverse back, now they got a problem. I mean, the list is just a long one on that score. I say, as I say, I'm only pointing out what masquerades as a principled view regarding misinformation on Twitter is far more likely to just simply reflect a person's political and social views, not really a, a principled stand. I mean, the censorship Twitter could have on Twitter, could have applied to both sides of the political spectrum. It didn't, though. Censorship was overwhelmingly directed at one side. And I can't help but notice that that didn't seem to bother 
Sir Elton, and so many others. I suspect it also reflects a rather insulting view of the public, because if I went and asked one of these high-profile Twitter quitters if they are personally, did they personally get bothered by misinformation or they got taken in by the misinformation or maybe extreme political views, they would say, well, of course not. No, their worry is about the great unwashed public. You know, the people who voted for Brexit against the capital and the establishment, uh, those that, who comprised the populist movements, a term always meant to be pejorative, the frightening masses who voted for Italy's new prime minister, Giorgia Meloni. And by the way, was it misinformation when so many in the establishment called her the next Mussolini? Why? Because she railed against high prices and declared her Christian values? Of course, that wasn't accurate. Her crime was that she was anti-establishment. And that's what merited the character assassination. But as the Twitter files show, calls for censorship, attacks on Elon Musk, the upset over misinformation are from people who describe themselves as being progressive and neither reflect the blatant disingenuousness driven by some sort of political or social agenda, or maybe a willful blindness to the propensity which cuts through, as I say, the whole political spectrum. As for Twitter, you know what? I think it's going to be fascinating to see, but I suspect it's going to be just fine. While people may be uncomfortable to admit it, the norm is for us to act in our self-interest rather than on principle. Come on, we're seeing it all the time. I rail against that about China. It's in technicolor. We got businesses as big as Apple or something like the NBA all working with the Communist Party because it's in their interest to do it financially. I mean, the fact that many goods in China are made with slave labor hasn't stopped us from buying them. I mean, if we're talking oil, what about President Biden just made a deal for oil that effectively ignores the egregious human rights record of Nicolas Maduro? I don't think I really need to give any other example because it's obvious. For most, we apply principle when it suits us. In the end, though, I suspect Twitter is going to be just fine as long as people deem it in their own self-interest. By the way, as an aside, kind of interesting, Twitter started to suspend users who track Elon Musk's personal data, like his private plane uh, flight path. And uh, of course, that'll engender a huge new debate about free speech. So my point, this ain't over yet. And neither's the show. We've got a ton of stuff coming your way. But we also, I also want to remind you, of course, that this is the last weekend for the silver coin. What a perfect time for that. You get your ticket to the World Outlook VIP pass. You get a silver coin. This is a great Christmas gift, by the way. I also think every year we get people, and it's been a few years we've been in person, but every year we get people coming up and they take a relative, son, daughter. They might take their father, their uncle, aunt, friends, all of that. It makes for a great weekend. And I'll tell you, do we ever have an absolutely fascinating uh, lineup this year, including so many great people? Uh, you know, whether we're talking about uh, Kevin Muir, whether we're talking about, uh, you know, Martin Armstrong talking, he came out with a, uh, a report this week that basically says, again, wait till you see what happens in the first and second quarter. It's going to be wild. Well, you can come and hear him and find out what that's all about. That's, uh, again, February 3rd and 4th. Just go to mikesmoneytalks.ca. Great last minute Christmas gift. Great opportunity to still get the VIP pass for the silver coin. All of that's coming your way as well as a great show. Glad you're with me. I always love to get the chance to talk to Aaron Dunn. 
Keystone Financial, but you find them at keystocks.com. And the reason is straightforward, besides Aaron's a wonderful guy, but I mean, their research has been exceptional. Their returns uh, have been exceptional. I've already been talking with Ryan Irvine too. He's been looking at, you know, sort of smaller growth cap uh, stories uh, that turn into big growth cap in so many areas, but also Aaron's had a wonderful run here when talking about quality stocks, uh, you know, that have a dividend yield. Uh, they do a great job with that. So for no further, I could keep going on and on. As you probably know, if you're a regular uh, a listener, I do that. But no, let's get Aaron in here instead. <laughs> Aaron, thanks for finding time for us. Oh, happy to do it. Ha- really happy to be back here. And, and, and thank you for your kind words. Appreciate that. Well, I'm really excited. I mean, World Outlook Conference coming up February 3rd and 4th, as you know, we have uh, we have worked with you guys. You guys have put out the small cap portfolio, and then we expanded it quite a few years ago into another section, which you handled, which was, you know, sort of the quality stocks that have dividend yields, and all of them have done spectacularly well. But we're in a different environment, you know, since I mean, I've talked to you since. But, you know, you look at back last February, you know, and we look at the bank rate, it's gone up 1,700% you know, since that February conference, uh, you, I mean, people don't need me to tell them when it comes to their mortgage rates, uh, their GIC rates, though, too, and the bond rates. How has that changed the environment that you're operating in, given that you look for quality with dividend yield? Right. So it, it, in terms of the long-term investing strategy, it, it, it doesn't change anything. And one of the reasons why in the dividend space, we've always focused on dividend growth stocks is because these are companies, they're not just paying an attractive yield, but it's a, it's a strong company, it's a growing business, they're producing cash flow, free cash flow, and they're growing their dividend over time. So in many cases, you're more than offsetting the inflation just with the dividend growth. And there, there, are, a number of, there, there are a number of reasons to focus on dividend growth stocks or invest in dividend growth stocks. But one that's very topical right now is that you do have the opportunity to offset some of that inflation. Now, obviously, with all of the fears about what's going to happen with the economy, the higher interest rates, you know, that's creating a lot of volatility in the market. It's creating a lot of um, negative investor sentiment. And just even from a fundamental perspective, I mean, if you're a company that has debt and a large percentage of that debt is variable, then that completely changes, you know, your, your, your economic reality right now with interest rates having come up. So we've seen that. So it's, it's, you know, we've always paid very close attention to the balance sheet. We want companies that are, great businesses growing, but also that have what we call a solid financial foundation. And that really comes down to the balance sheet, not too much debt. You can have debt. That's an absolute requirement for some companies and capital intensive industries, but they have to be reasonable levels of debt, manageable, um, and also just manageable when, uh, when, when the market changes. So, you know, there's, um, there's, there's a lot of opportunities out there. Some stocks have performed extremely well. Some have not performed well in the current market. Some are producing great financial performance and offsetting inflation with growth, and they still haven't performed well. So there's, I mean, it's, it's in some ways it's very exciting. And, um, you know, we're right now we're actually in the process of doing a huge research project in the dividend area. It's called our, our dividend all-star report. And it's, we look at every company in the Canadian dividend market, that's 350 stocks. We research every single one. We provide coverage on all of our existing recommendations. We make a couple of new recommendations, and then we provide, you know, a, a ten to fifteen stock monitor list of companies that, that investors have to watch. So it's, uh, yeah, there there are some really interesting opportunities out there. Let me just ask you as a sort of a benchmark. Uh, talking, uh, you know, again last February, and I know this is a very broad question, but just kind of an idea: if you were a quality stock, what kind of dividend yields were you seeing then compared to now? 
Well, for a quality stock, you know, it's, it's interesting because in most cases, the dividend yield hasn't really changed a lot. I mean, the, for a lot of our companies, the, you know, there's been some volatility, but it's not been in the dividend state in the dividend space. Most of them have been pretty staple. But, you know, I would say, you know, previous to the to the interest rate hikes, you know, you're probably for quality dividend stocks looking at the three to four percent dividend yield range, maybe a little bit higher from some select opportunities that have a little bit less growth, but still some growth. And now you could maybe add, you know, maybe a percentage on top of that. Right. So yeah. maybe you're looking more to the four to five percent. No, it's, it's interesting. Uh, give us an example of one you're looking at now. And this is, again, we're not giving financial advice in a way. People know what their own circumstances are, what fits in their own portfolio, et cetera, et cetera. But I still want to, you know, an example, you can work us through something that you're looking at now. As you said, you put a number of stocks on your radar, you follow them, then you pull the trigger or sell either way. I mean, you give advice on both sides, but give us an example of one you you sort of put on your radar now. Sure. I mean, I, I would love to. And if this is actually going to be, I'm going to give you what I consider to be our, our number one core um, uh, income growth stock right now. And that's that's Brookfield Infrastructure. So it's BIP.UN um, on the TSX, $45 unit price right now. It pays a yield right now about 4.5%, right? So they're a global infrastructure stock, high quality assets, ports, data centers, railways, utilities. And this is actually, this isn't something that just came on our radar. We originally recommended the stock in 2011 at 960, right? It's trading today, as I said, $45, but they have paid out over $20 in income distributions over that time. So double the original purchase price. And this, the stock continues to perform. So just in the last quarter, cash flow per unit up 12%, expect 12 to 15% growth in 2023. Now, why I'm talking about this right now, well, there's a number of reasons, but what I want to focus on is inflation. People are worried with the income stocks about how inflation impacts the, the various companies. With Brookfield Infrastructure, 75% of their revenues are indexed to inflation. Another 10% are, are inflation protected. So not only is inflation not a risk to them, it's actually a growth driver. It's part of their 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 it's part of what's driving the growth in the company. 90% of the of the debt is 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 at fixed rates. So that's something it's you know, it's not a high variable debt structure. They increase their income distributions every year, just did an increase of 6%, lots of growth, um, nearly tripled their capital backlog over the last year, 6.4 billion right now. One of those things is an agreement that they signed with Intel. They're going to invest $15 billion in Intel's new chip manufacturing facility in the United States. So this is, again, it's all about the reshoring post-COVID. You don't want to have all your chips manufactured outside of your borders, and they're benefiting from that. Um, but just tremendous track record historically. We think that the fundamentals have never been stronger and we, we continue to see it as a core income growth holding. And just, just a couple of quick questions around that. First is, how long should I expect to hold that? You know, I mean, you know, I always, and Victor and I always make a very strong distinction between, are you talking about trading? Are you talking about that kind of stuff? Are you talking about investing? I mean, this is an investment, but just from your experience, and you guys do a ton of seminars at Keystone, uh, you know, dealing with people, how to build a portfolio, what kind of time frame would you sort of broadly suggest here? Right. Great question. And you know me, I mean, when I'm talking stocks, I'm never talking about trading. I'm always talking about investing. So when we look at a company as a new recommendation or a new purchase, we want to give that company, we want to have a minimum time horizon of one to three years. That's what we think 
is a reasonable time horizon to allow that company to execute their strategy and allow any short-term mar market volatility to work its way up. However, if you have a great company, my, my ideal time horizon is forever. And those, those are words right out of Warren Buffett's mouth, right? Like, like I said, with, with Brookfield Infrastructure, we've had coverage on the stock for over 10 years. We've put out about 30 buy recommendations over that period of time. And right now, you know, the fundamentals have never been better, right? So we continue to, to recommend it as, as a core holding. Um, if something changes, we're happy to sell it and move on to something else. But as long as the company is continuing to grow, continuing to perform, and the valuation doesn't get, um, doesn't get too expensive, then we'll, we'll continue to hold it. And there's no reason why an investor shouldn't. And again, I want to emphasize uh, for people that I'm talking about the approach that you guys take at Keystone. And, you know, we were using an example uh, of, of Brookfield. Uh, so just very quickly, what's the dividend yield on it? That's about 4.5% right now. So with the dividend tax credit, you're more nudging up towards six. I'm glad yeah, you sorry, mentioned the equivalent of six if it was I'm, an interest bearing. Sorry. I'm glad I'm glad you mentioned that because BIP.UN pays an income distribution. It's not an eligible dividend. Um, however, mm -hmm. so you're actually going to get a little more tax on that depending on where you hold it. However, if you're concerned about that, you can also get the other class of shares, which is BIPC, and that is just an eligible dividend. And the yield on that is about 3.5%, maybe, maybe a hair higher. That gives you the full tax credit. You're basically investing in the exact same company. Um, I, I personally think you can go either way. Typically, though, if you're holding it in RSP, I've said, you know, going the .un is, is generally the best. But I mean, everybody's tax situation is different. Yeah, but within an RSP, it's not taxable at that moment. You know, it's not just when moment. you when you take money out of the out of the fund, and they don't make a distinction. It's considered income when you take money out of your RSP. But I'm glad I'm glad it just reminds people there is a question. The one I just asked is mm -hmm. it eligible for the Canadian dividend tax credit, no matter what we're talking about. The other thing that uh, I find interesting, and I've got I, I would put a big check mark by what you're doing, is considering the impact of inflation because a lot of companies. Are really suffering, and depending on they may more be more intra, uh, sorry inflation sensitive. You know, if it's using a, a ton of oil and gas, for example, I don't know. I'm just throwing out examples, but the cost of mm -hmm. doing business has gone up. So I think it's really important, as you've said, to look at okay, well, how will this fare in an inflationary environment? Oh, I mean, you, you have to, and I'm not trying to predict um, where inflation is going to go in 2023. I mean, I can, we could, that's a whole other segment probably. And we could talk about that. What I want to do is I want to build a portfolio with a mix of different types of growth stocks. Some of these staple names like Brookfield infrastructure, some more exciting themes, higher growth, uh, even in the technology space, but really companies that have essential, essential services, essential assets, solving important problems, um, and that are growing and, and have that strong, that strong foundation. Um, of, of a strong balance sheet. And if you do that, then over time, that's the way you're going to build a robust portfolio that's going to perform in any market. And then you don't have to predict what the Fed's going to do next month or what mood investors are going to wake up with um, in the morning tomorrow. Uh, it's interesting. Later on in the show, I'm going to talk with Ozzy Jurek because he sent me a note and he says, you know, I like this environment. He's talking as a buyer, as an investor, both. And he said, and I'd, I'd ask you the same kind of question that it would seem to me one, there's not the panic out there in terms of, boy, I better buy it today. It's going up tomorrow at noon. You know, I mean, that sort of attitude that drove the market for a while. Uh, now you can be more selective. And some of the stocks that maybe uh, got thrown out with the bathwater, that they maybe they didn't have a dramatic decline, but you still can get them at better prices than maybe you could have a year ago. 
Oh, absolutely. And there's no other sector where that is more true than in the U.S. technology space and software stocks. I mean, it's it's that that sector. I, I love it long term, but it just got so overvalued that the vast majority of great companies in that space just became un, uninvestable. Um, and now you have some, you know, market leading companies that are down 80, 90 percent. Mm. Um, and the, but the funny thing or not so funny is that it, that doesn't even mean that they're cheap. They were so overvalued that even after a 90% decline, most of them aren't even cheap relative to our metrics. But at least now you're getting in a range where you have like some great long-term innovative businesses where you can actually do some research and potentially invest in them. Well, I don't want to run out of time without asking you for maybe another stock, if you can give it to us. Yeah, absolutely. So because we just talked, I just had mentioned technology. Why don't we use that as a segue? And I'm going to talk about a U.S. tech company. That's a space that we're looking at very closely. We did a huge amount of research um, over, over the summer. So I'm going to talk about, about Microsoft, um, MSFT on the NASDAQ, trading at $244. You know, it's obviously everybody knows who Microsoft is. I've recommended it before in the past. Um, but when you, people think Microsoft, they think Windows, they think Office, but that's, that's the wrong way to look at it. Yes, they are the most diversified defensive software company in the world, but they're also the second largest cloud computing company in the world. And cloud, it's a huge theme in, in tech. It was absolute, absolutely essential during the pandemic, and it continues to be a huge theme today. I don't see that changing anytime soon. So Microsoft's number two in the cloud computing space in the world, but it's growing its market share while the number one player, Amazon AWS, is not. So right now, Microsoft, they own about 22% of the cloud market. That's up from 14% of the market five years ago. Amazon AWS, just basically more or less stagnant at 32%, right? And one thing that's really interesting is that there's a lot, there's, there's a lot of buzz right now about intelligent chatbots, um, uh, GPT-3, and you know a lot of talk about that. We're getting questions, and it's like, well, is this legit technology, and how do you invest in it? Well, first of all, yes, it's more than legit te technology. It's, it's the next level, right? But how do you invest in it? The best way to do that right now is to buy Microsoft. And the reason for that is that Microsoft has a partnership and a major investment in a company called OpenAI. That's the company that developed GPT-3, which is by far the most powerful language model in the world right now. So Microsoft has exclusive rights, the preferred partner. They also have exclusive rights to offer OpenAI's models through their cloud computing platform Azure, right? So we think that gives them another competitive advantage that supports their continued growth in the cloud market, if they were to ever catch up and surpass Amazon, that would be absolutely huge for their valuation. Um, and not to mention just the growth in, in, in earnings. Now, they've come off three incredibly strong years where, you know, a, a $2 trillion company is growing their earnings at, you know, 25, 30%. Um, so this year, we think that, you know, you're probably going to get flatter earnings growth. Um, but if you're looking like the next two, three years, we think that the stock is very attractively valued, about 25, 26 times earnings right now. That's growth at a reasonable price for what I would consider to be, you know, one of the more innovative companies in the world. And, you know, we would we would we would continue to buy it here. OK, I, I can't help myself. Let me uh, time's run out, but I'm still going to ask you for another. <laughs> You're going to ask me for another. OK, so now we're going back into dividends, right? Because there's, right? there's another company that I love. It's, it's smaller than Brookfield Infrastructure. Uh, but it's it's a great name. It's Exchange Income Fund, right? Fifty dollars a share is the price right now. Ch pays a yield of one point five percent. That is that is just a straight dividend, a straight eligible dividend. 
So they're a diversified acquisition-oriented company. So they have businesses in aerospace, aviation, manufacturing, another long-standing recommendation. So we recommended them in 2010 at $14. As I said, $50 today. Over that time, they paid more than the original purchase price in dividends. And they just reported their best quarterly, their best quarterly performance um, in, in their history. Revenue was up 47%, adjusted earnings up 84%. They did two dividend cr- increases this year. 16 dividend increases over the last 18 years. So their interest expense did increase, but the growth in their business more than offset that, well more than offset that. And they actually, the, the, the interest rate increases have actually made their acquisition strategy um, more attractive because they're reporting that there's less competition in the market and there's more opportunities for them to bid on some larger and some more interesting companies. Uh, once again, really good valuation. 15 times earnings, about 11 times free cash flow, tremendous track record. They just pump out the income. They pump out the dividends. They grow the dividend. Great management team and great business. So yeah, it's it's another one. We've we've had it under coverage for a while, but I still think it's one of the one of the better names right now in the market. Well, I mean, all you've done is whet my appetite for the World Outlook Conference, for example, because you and Ryan will come by for Keystone and you'll provide your your uh, World Outlook portfolio again. Never fail to do over double digit. I know you can't say that guarantees further returns. It's just like I like my chances. Uh, so Aaron will be there. Obviously, Ryan Irvine will be there. And again, talking about some specific recommendations about what to do in the next year. But in the meantime, you can go to keystocks.com, keystocks.com. This uh, poor Aaron had nothing to do with this, but we phoned the office. We said, we need a Money Talks special. And so that's what they've gone. Just go to keystocks.com. You can click on the Money Talks special offer. We'll send it out to through Money Talks. You want to take advantage of it. Uh, Again, it doesn't matter which area of the market you're in, whether you're in small cap, mid cap, growth, aggressive growth, or as you've been hearing with uh, Aaron, you know, solid growth and dividend growth, all of that part of that, but just go to keystocks.com. In the meantime, Aaron, I wish you, your family, a Merry Christmas and look forward to seeing you in February. Absolutely. I can't wait to see you guys. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Time now for the quote of the week. You know, I think historians are going to have a hard time understanding and figuring out how what I would consider delusion and magical thinking to dominate politics and public debate on such pivotal issues like climate change and energy. I mean, heck, I don't have any idea. I've only got guesses as to why virtue signaling came to be prioritized over action. I mean, come on, for all the talk about a climate emergency we've been hearing for decades, it didn't produce an urgency to come up with actually practical plans, workable solutions. So here we are, what, 27 years from the first climate summit? We're 16 years from the dire warnings of Al Gore's inconvenient truth or the apocalyptic forecast of the likes of Greta Thunberg, David Suzuki, Extinction Rebellion, and a a litany of other climate crusaders. But we're not meaningfully closer to transition to renewable energy on a global scale or moving 1.4 billion gas and diesel-powered cars to electric on a global scale. I mean, all of a sudden, there seems to be an increasing recognition that we don't have the resources, including the rare earth minerals, let alone things like copper or nickel or lithium. Instead, we've had an avalanche of what I call magical thinking, a world where the need of raw materials has been completely ignored. 
let alone the need for fossil fuels to power the machineries to mine and refine the resources that we're going to need for decades to come. And that brings me to my quote of the week by Bloomberg's excellent energy reporter and columnist, Javier Blass, who recently wrote in quotes, in energy and commodities, there's stuff that's always at least 10 years away. Fusion energy is one. Asteroid mining is another. And so is peak oil demand. The problem is that a decade goes by. The prediction doesn't come true. The goalposts are moved further out and everyone forgets about the old predictions. End of quote. Well, you know, the problem is that we pretended the need for oil or natural gas and coal was going to end in just a few years, which is nothing short of delusional. I mean, you could even start with what? The 5,000 products made are petroleum-based? Well, we're not even dealing with that. But we've just begun to produce the dire consequences from ignoring the need for, it could be natural gas, could be oil, that kind of stuff. But we're seeing it in terms of gas and diesel prices or shortages, sky-high fertilizer prices with dire consequences. Really serious stuff when we talk about food food production because of fertilizer prices, as an example. Or people having a challenge to heat their home. Or really a change in lifestyle, the job losses, etc. No, that all comes back to decades of magical thinking instead of practical applications. I mean, it seems like every week we've got to look at what the interest rate market is doing. Two weeks ago, we had the Bank of Canada. This past week, we have the Federal Reserve. I want to bring Michael Levy in. Mike, what was interesting, I thought about the Federal Reserve half point increase is there's one side people are saying that wasn't, that could have been three quarters, but the other side was he was much more hawkish than the Canadian governor, Tiff Macklin, by saying basically, hey, don't even think about it. There's another one coming. And Mike, there for sure is. And um, actually, uh, the tone right after the interest rate hike was announced was uh, fairly moderate. The markets didn't really uh, um, move very much either way. But then the press conference, when he started to talk about his, his tone, his hawkish tone, and even if they go to 25 basis points next raise, that that's not what he's talking about is not how much, 25 or 50. What he's talking about is the impact they want to have on inflation. And um, he sounded very, very hawkish on that, unlike the Bank of Canada. But uh, I found uh, uh, Powell's comments just actually even a little bit scary because it really freaked the market towards the end of the week. I doubt that one day was down over 700 points and that carried on until the end of the week. So I really think there's a a, a, a combination of purpose between Powell and, Matt, Powell and Macklem, but the way they're wording it and the way they're bringing it forward to me is completely different. It also seems a big change in the environment to me is that if we went back a couple of months, the debate was, will we have a recession because of these interest rate increases? That doesn't seem to be debated any longer. It seems to be, we're getting a recession. How severe will it be? And uh, I just found that change in tone of just the overall analytical commentary was kind of interesting. And, and clearly, I'm not suggesting for a second that like Tiff Macklin isn't well aware of that. I think he is well aware of it, but I also really think that Macklem uh, has a better idea than Powell of impact of what he's saying, how he's saying can have 
not only on the markets, but on people, on the consumers. And, and uh, there, there is really a big difference. But I, I think you've nailed it there, Mike. It's not if we're going to have a recession. It's how bad a recession is it going to be. And my feeling, just coming back from the United States and doing some reading, uh, that um, the, the fears of the severity of the recession are much greater down there. Now, that doesn't mean that it's not going to happen here in Canada and that Macklem is not going to have to stick to his guns. But uh, I think the, the the important thing is to listen to them, listen to the tone. And one other thing about Macklem that I noticed, my, my view on him is, Mike, he may think going to four and a half, five, five and a half percent might be enough if they keep it at that level for some time, it will have an impact on people's spending habits. It will have an impact on inflation. I believe that Powell is looking at, if it doesn't work at this level, we're going to raise it. And if it doesn't work on that level, we're going to raise it again. And if, and if, and that can go on for quite some time. So I think there is really a, a, a sole purpose is the same between the two of them. But how we get there, that's going to be the big question. Well, I thought also Tiff Macklin sort of summed it up very clearly, you know, in quotes that he said, if we raise rates too much, we could drive the economy into an unnecessary, painful recession and undershoot the inflation target. If we don't raise them enough, inflation will remain elevated and households and businesses will come to expect persistently high inflation with inflation running well above target. This is a greater risk. So that's the other side. His, his idea, which I thought was important for him to state, he thinks the bigger risk is for letting inflation, you know, uh, to back off on the interest rate increases too soon. Yeah. He thinks that's the carries the bigger risk here. So again, we had the International Monetary Fund come out this week and say, hey, they, you know, again, we used to debate, will the rates start going down in six months? So I think now a consensus is starting to build. They're not, they're not really having any meaningful drop you know, right through 2023. That's what the International Monetary Fund says. And I don't disagree with that, maybe even to into 2024. But um, I, I've noted in Powell's comments, and I believe Macklem feels just about the same way, is interest rate increases work with a lag, Mike. And we both know that first hitting rate-sensitive sectors like housing, car sales, then squeezing the consumer spending over time as homeowners renew their mortgages at higher rates. This delay makes it hard to judge the impact of rate hikes in real time and create the risk of over-tightening monetary policy. And I believe that is absolutely a huge risk. And something else that I noticed, Mike, is it is having an impact now on the psychology of spending. Both uh, consumers in the United States and Canada, Christmas sales are starting to lag now. The stores are not as busy as what they were. So I believe the message, but not only the message, but the reality of not having as many dollars in their pockets is affecting consumers. Yeah, and I think you're right. It's the psychology that's taking over. And that's exactly what the Bank of Canada and the Federal Reserve wanted to happen. They want us pulling in our horns. They want us, uh, you know, being more cautious, not out there spending as much money. So, you know, I'll, I'll give you the last word on that. But that seems to be the environment they've created. Well, what I read uh, uh, um, earlier, I guess it was, yes, yesterday morning, um, Goldman Sachs 
is planning to lay off several thousand employees. They're the big uh, bank in the United States with a brokerage arm. Uh, they, they are uh, planning to lay off several thousand employees, according to f people familiar with the matter. And that's another consequence of this year's deal-making slump in their business, but also another matter of what's going to happen to employment rates. I think that's a really, really good signal is that unemployment now, the rates are going to start to be affected by the action of the Fed and the Bank of Canada. As you say, a lag uh, report from the previous increases in interest rates. Mike, you go out, have a great holiday season. We'll talk to you. Hey, I'm going to give you Christmas off. I've decided to give you Christmas off. Yay! That's right. Yeah, let's give him <laughs> Christmas off. But we'll talk to you uh, shortly after. And Mike, Merry Christmas to you and your family. And we will talk to you and we'll do a little looking back, I guess, again this yeah. year. Much appreciated. One of the biggest names when it comes to the world of silver and analysis and precious metals and other things is David Morgan, the Morgan Report. Very pleased to get a chance to chat with him again. David, thanks for finding time. Michael, it's been too long. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, I'm going to start. There's a few things I want to get to, and I'll just tell people. Uh, you've been writing some really interesting things on the energy market that I'm going to get to. But I want to start with silver. Still a lot of questions there. And one of the reasons that silver hasn't, you know, and I'm talking on the big picture, hasn't run away from people. So it's easier for them to contemplate not feeling like they missed out. So we have had a little run recently, but let's start with your sort of broad perspective on what you're seeing in the silver market. Well, there's more interest in the silver market than there's been probably ever before. And this started with the Reddit crowd where they went into this GameStop short position and then that kind of morphed over into the wall street silver community and a lot of people thought well we'll do the same thing that happened in the stock market and of course in the commodities markets it's much much more difficult and a lot of these people that were aligned with the wall street silver philosophy found out that um, you know i was right or the market's different however i was really surprised michael that so many uh people that got into silver through that idea have stuck with it and really uh, become uh, advocates of uh, the silver story. So I think that's part of it is there's more, more awakened people, you might say, as far as sound money, honest money, the economy and everything goes along with uh, the final phases of a great inflation, which we're experiencing through the printing press. Well, I was just going to say what's interesting is some at least the underlying fundamental factors. And one is, as you just alluded to, there's an awful lot of worry about the quality of paper currency in terms of longer term buying power. And we've got so much evidence, I'm not going to rehash it here, but we're also seeing demand go up. I've seen that in silver. Uh, I'm seeing this huge discrepancy between the paper silver market. That would be things like exchange traded funds, but with the physical silver, oh my gosh, it's, it's, you know, we've, we've sold a lot more in the terms of paper silver than we ever have delivered in physical silver. So that's another bullish factor. And the other thing that I've been alluding to is really, if you're going to electrify the world, you're not doing it without silver. You know, as simple as that. It's a built-in demand factor. Absolutely. Let's just dwell down on that a slight bit. I mean, yeah. everyone's talking about, you know, lots of things. And most people incorrectly think that, you know, money makes the world go round. Really, it's not true. Energy makes the world go round. And people talk about, well, there's a lot of, um, oh, you can categorize it by <clears throat> how much uh, food there is or how much money there is per population. But really, it's how much energy there is per population.
question. So as a quick thought experiment, let's just do something real wacky and wild, and I know you let me be free. You know, let's just say Tesla is right, and the Tesla coil did provide free energy for the world. Think about that for a moment, folks. What will the planet look like now? Because basically, the higher your energy per capita, the higher the standard of living. So people that were in the subterranean desert or you know any place on Earth that basically has no electricity would uh, be, would have the ability to prosper far more than if they don't have that kind of power. And just saying to get to, I forget the percentage, Michael. I know it's 2 billion people live on $4 a day or less. Most of those don't probably have power or electrical power. And so just to give them that basic, what we consider in the North America is a basic need that everybody has. We take it for granted. Just to get it to them would actually put a, a big dent in the silver market because you've got to have silver to provide electricity. And, and let me ask about the production side. Uh, you know, we've seen, for example, in the oil market, you know, we don't have, uh, you know, huge oil production capital investment. And the reason is part of it is they're saying, well, we're not going to use your oil in five years or 10 years or 15, whatever. That's what the government's saying. That's hardly an incentive to go out and spend billions of dollars. Not the same for silver. I mean, there's not the government making comments like that about silver. But what is the story with the amount of new silver coming online to meet sort of rising demand? Well, silver's been static, more or less, within a percent or two for the last five years. And there's been uh, increasing demand. And in fact, the Silver Institute just put out a paper about a month ago that said that there'll be a 200 million ounce deficit for 2022. So there is incentive, but if you can't mine something unless it's profitable. And right now, even the big stalwart like Pan American Silver, that's give or take, it depends on the mine, jurisdiction and all that, <clears throat> but it's roughly 20 bucks an ounce. And we're at, you know, just over that now. And you really need good margins in any business. You want great margins to have a very prosperous business. But in the mining business, there was a study done years ago. It's called by Archie. I forget his last name. He worked for Unical or something. Anyway, the point being is that you need to really have a viable business in mining. You need to be able to have your all-in sustaining cost to be one half of what the market price is. So, for example... If your all-in sustaining cost is $20 an ounce, you need a $40 silver price to have a really viable business. And it's not just a joke. There's an asymptotic curve that I put into this paper that's in for our behind a paywall in the members section. It's only four pages long, but it's very significant. I want to go one step further, Michael. And, you know, it's been a big push for the, you know, green movement and all that. And I've read a couple of books. One's from a Canadian. I won't name him. Brilliant guy. but. Um, not so brilliant on energy, uh, because I'm going to tell the truth. And he just didn't think it through this way. He just, you know, had the data he had. And there's nothing wrong with the data he presented. He said, hey, look, solar is costing about the same per kilowatt hour than uh, running a coal plant. So let's just go solar. So I've done this before, but I did it more deliberately because I used my Camtasia and I put it on the screen and I showed everybody the math. So if you go and what, if you go solar, is there enough silver? And the answer is no. If you use all the silver that's available, you would power both the, the okay, for the residential side of America, it would take about 1.2 billion ounces of silver. For the commercial side, it takes about 50% more than that. So you're looking at about 1.8 billion ounces. So you have those two numbers and you've got 
all of the solar needed to power the United States, both residential and commercial. But that's only 25% of the world's resource base. So you need to triple that to get the rest of the world on solar. In other words, the silver just doesn't exist. You couldn't do it. And it's even worse in other commodities, as we'll probably get to later in our talk. But it is something that these people don't think through. It's like, oh, well, cost the same. Just go that way. You have no conception of what it takes from a material outlay of uh, not only the mechanics of silver and everything goes into a solar panel, but the amount of labor and the amount of energy it would take to get that. It's, I mean, I'm with you completely on that. I found it interesting. I'm going to come back to that in just one sec. But the other side, I didn't appreciate it. So I looked at the numbers and it still was greater than I thought. My goodness, there's not a lot of silver mines out there in terms of market capitalization. Like if, the, if people turn their attention toward, hey, I want to find a good silver miner. Boy, you could buy them all for like a fraction of even something like gold. I mean, it's one of the smallest sort of industrial groups uh, out there, you know, it pales in comparison to steel or copper, that kind of thing. That's the other thing is that, as I say, uh, my my sort of scenario has been, uh, it looks like things sort of trundle along and then all of a sudden they get in the radar and boy, do they move then. And I always say it's too late to wait till then. You know, the moves are too abrupt uh, for that. But I see silver in that category. And so that's why I looked up, my gosh, the market capitalization, if I took all the great silver companies, still isn't much. It's a very small market, and that's why, as the crypto thing disrupts even further, and I believe it will, you'll see some of that money come back in the silver market. I did a series called The Crypto Conspiracy. There's 28 podcasts. There's four in the silver psyop. The basic premise, Michael, is that money that would have normally gone into the precious metals went into the crypto space. In gold, it doesn't make a huge difference. It would affect it, but the gold market is 11 times bigger mm-hmm. than the crypto market. But the silver market is pathetically small relative to the gold and the crypto market. So any small amount of money that went into crypto that came back into silver or went from crypto to silver would have definitely an effect on the silver price. And when silver prices go, um, I mean, I know this is pretty straightforward, but uh, because you've been writing about it for so long, but, you know, look to the seniors first, then the mids, and then the more aggressive juniors. Is that, you know, correct sort of battle plan? Yeah. I've got a new special going at silver123.net. I'm giving it $200 off in a 15-minute consultation. And I've got a couple of new members sign up. And one guy's like, well, you know, gold hasn't done anything for 10 years. I go, yep, you're right, it hasn't. But I showed him one of our top picks in the top tier where he put some big money in it. And that stock went from 50 to 150. So you have a 300% gain while gold went from 2000 to 1350 to 2000, a round trip. So if you pick the right miners, this is a royalty company. Uh, you can make money in the sector. You just have to know what you're doing. But there aren't too many people who can make the statement I just made, Michael, and that's why I do what I do. But um, So it's good to have. I look at it like the golden egg and the goose. When you buy a gold coin and you put it away, you bought a golden egg. And that's fine. And everyone should have some safety. It's, it's wealth preservation. But you really rather have the golden goose that lays those golden eggs. And if you find a, go- a goose that actually lays gold, uh, you want to be a, you want to own that company. So you, buy, you become a shareholder. Uh, if you want to get a uh, flying chicken that yaks a lot and doesn't have anything other than uh, gold pink coming around, then uh, join the normal uh, gold, con- gold consortium that uh, basically, unfortunately, talks a lot about these uh, what I call penny dreadfuls. And of course, we need junior miners. I'm very fond of Canada. I love Vancouver. and I know we need the junior mining. 
industry. What I'm trying to let everybody know is that the way to make big money in the mining sector, unless you are a financier, is to buy the right companies. And that's what I teach. Yeah. And the other thing in the Morgan report, I just want to make sure people know you recommend, you know, you say this is what's going on in this sector. This is what's going on, you know, with the juniors and me, you know, I'm just letting people know you focus on that, uh, you know, every time you put out a letter and I know in other uh, other platforms, too. Uh, let me jump back to what we were saying about the energy market and get a quick, you know, you had mentioned this is something that I think listeners to Money Talks will be uh, certainly well aware of is for all the talk about the transition. You know, all the renewable energy talk, all the electric vehicle talk, there's been no practical plan put forward to get the materials that we will need for all of that. And, and you've done a lot of work on that side. Yeah, this was something we put in a December issue, and it was really a lecture done by a gentleman. I give his credit. I can't remember his name. It's rather hard to pronounce, but we do cite it. He um, it was a two-year study. And so we listened to the lecture, which is about an hour, hour and a half long, a couple of times. We took out the high points for our readers. And what he says, or what we say in our report is, so how much metal don't we have that we can never get <coughs> to go from hydrocarbons to all electric power? And this is an open and shut case. Look below for how many years of mining are required to fulfill the plans of the green movement. The sustainable energy types are looking to replace all internal combustion cars, trucks, ships, planes, railroads with electric power. Added to the mix is the need for hydrogen fuel cells, EV batteries, wind turbines, and solar panels. So how much metals need to phase out fossil fuel? For copper, 6,700 million tons are needed. So if we take the 320, so if we take the rate of extraction from 2019 and project that forward, in other words, all the copper mining we did in 2019, and we kept mining at that rate. How long would it take to get enough copper to go green? It's 328 years. How about nickel? Well, for nickel, it's 518 years. What about lithium? Everybody loves lithium. Well, for lithium, it would take 16,120 years. All right, cobalt. Well, cobalt can replace lithium. It's more efficient. It's a lot of talk. It takes 2,200 years. Um, graphite, uh, 12,000 years. Silver? This is kind of the best one of all. It's only 121 years. So <laughs> this is absolute insanity for anyone that can think. And what was so interesting in this lecture, Michael, is that the gentleman that did this study uh, said that actually one of the bureaucrats, he didn't name him, or to my recollection, he didn't. And all this bureaucrat said was, we don't want to hear that. Come up with something else. I mean, like, come up with what? A new reality? A parallel universe? A VR game? I mean, what are these people talking about? I really, I have total disdain for the political class more and more the older I get. I do like both, I really dislike both sides of the of the fence equally. I mean, red, blue, green, purple, I really don't care. I just dislike them all. They're just such leeches and they provide no real solutions for anything. They're reactive. They do not respond to the needs of the population at all, in my view. But, but those numbers that you're sharing, it's just such a great, vivid example of there's just nothing practical or realistic being offered here. You know, let alone, by the way, for all the mining, you know, the uh, massive increase in mining to accomplish that renewable grid or the electric vehicle transformation, as they're going to run on fossil fuels to get there anyways. Exactly. And they're not mining without it. I, I yeah. just have been flabbergasted in the way you are that 
we're not talking about some deep philosophical uh, philosophical difference. No, I'm talking about just straight straight practicality on this thing. And uh, yeah, and those numbers are do a great job of illustrating the degree to which this is. You know, I just don't see how we're going forward without a, a massive shift. Uh, you know, in our demand for something practical. You know, let's start with the public's demand saying, wait a second, that's horse manure. Give me something real because we sure aren't experiencing it. Yeah, we're reading, we're getting to that tipping point. I mean, there's several ways to look at it. One I'll say, I know I can say it on your show and it's not to be a uh, fear monger, but you know, one way you curb demand is by uh, lessening the amount of demand, which would mean lower population. Another way, of course, is to mitigate or enact laws that uh, require that you only have a small living space, like, you know, get your 12 by 12 apartment and that's it. But even there, it goes back to what you just said, Michael. Well, how do you have the energy to tear down all the buildings in, you know, Alberta and BC and put in these cubicles? I mean, you know, we've got what we've got. We've got to really use our heads, our brains and our guts come up with solutions. So yeah, you can turn down your thermostat, you can walk more often, you can ride a bike, and all those things do play into it. I don't think there's enough at the margin for that to make a huge difference. It might make a difference in your personal life, but this idea that we're going green is so absolutely absurd. It needs to be shouted at. Thanks for giving me the platform to do it, because the idea is we do need to revamp the system in many, many ways. And without energy, we're all doomed. Let me just very quickly to finish up, talk about the investment side of this. We talked about silver a moment ago. Do you see opportunity, though? Uh, I mean, whether we get there or not, whether it's realistic or not, uh, for example, you know, I, I still think they're going to be a ramp up in, in copper mining, as I'm just throwing one example oh, yeah. out, or nickel. And so yeah. does that provide, are you seeing an opportunity for us as individual investors in that area? I am. I'm more looking at, you know, what the market tells me rather than what I want or think about. Uh, right now, the market's signaling the monetary metals are the best bet at this point in time. Copper is probably a third. Uh, but what I really see is, and I wrote in the last letter before this one, that you've got to, the, the best way through a depression is to come up with people, what people really need. Well, we all need energy. So if you could do, let's say, a modular facility that used uh, nuclear reactors in a very small space. In other words, it was such a small amount of radioactivity, but it could still power, let's say, 100,000 homes. And you cookie cutter these things out and you punch them out like, uh, you know, candy bars. I mean, that's a solution. So I wrote about that in, um, in the last report, I believe, just because, you know, I have younger readers and then they want to do something. I said, well, start that business or at least look into it. Now, there's a lot of roadblocks because of the political class. However, as this thing gets to crunch time, that tipping point I mentioned a moment ago, Michael, all of a sudden, you know, there's not so many roadblocks. It's, wait a minute, this thing actually works? Yeah, how much does it cost? It'll cost 100 grand. How many homes does it power? 100,000. I'm just making up numbers, but I'm giving the idea that there's lots of things that could be uh, used today that don't exist because the way the system is structured through the banking elite down to the corporations that dictate the political class that basically pour it all out onto us. And that's not the way it really works in a free society. We're supposed I was to say, 
so much to talk about and so much encouragement for people to look look for the morganreport.com morganreport.com you know all the information there david i really appreciate you finding time and i wish you a very merry christmas same to you michael it's been too long i really appreciate time with you and your insights and i'm glad that we got to uh put out this information thank you absolutely Time now for the shocking stat of the week. You know, currently there's an ongoing lawsuit by attorney generals of Missouri and Louisiana alleging the U.S. federal government colluded with social media companies to censor freedom of speech when it came to coverage of COVID. Well, it's going to be interesting, by the way, to see the impact of the Twitter files in that suit, given the numerous incidents of cooperation of Twitter and government. I mean, there was blatant censorship of the Great Barrington Declaration, which proposed targeted protection of vulnerable groups because of the widespread damage of the lockdown approach. We got emails from Dr. Anthony Fauci, National Health Institute, Francis Collins. Hey, they didn't want to talk about this from a scientific perspective. They wanted to discredit the three founding uh, epidemiologists who put that forward. I mean, in Fauci and Collins' own words, their goal was to institute, in quotes, a devastating published takedown against the COVID Barrington Declaration, labeling it nonsense or misinformation, and all with the help of censorship by Twitter, by Google, Reddit, and government officials. I mean, the efforts to squelch scientific debate in favor of character assassination are undeniable, and as is the effort, though, to keep the public information regarding implementing full lockdowns, which are contrary to the world's health organization recommendation. They didn't want that, credit, uh, that criticism brought forward. I mean, the World Health Organization made it clear. They said in a statement, we in the World Health Organization don't advocate lockdowns as the primary means of control of the virus. We really do appeal to all world leaders, stop using lockdowns as your primary control method. The approach of health authorities and government was anti-science from the outset. It was about managing the public, many times with misinformation, instead of informing us. Of course, officials don't want to admit it, which brings me to my shocking stat of the week. And it's straightforward. In his court deposition in the lawsuit by the Attorney Generals of Missouri and Louisiana. This is amazing. Dr. Fauci was anything but forthcoming. In replying to the questions posed to him, he said, I don't recall. This is the guy at the center of it all. I don't recall a shocking 174 times in one deposition. And of course, I think that's eroded confidence in public health officials and government in itself. I think the consequences are far reaching. And in the meantime, as I say, I never need to hear from Dr. Fauci again. I want to bring Ozzy Jurek in right now. You know, Ozzy, I've got a, a few things I want to jump at you here. And that's let's talk about the overall market right now. And you think we've had this reduction in prices, and I've certainly had a reduction in volumes, et cetera. You know, I would think that this probably is not bad news for anyone who is a buyer. We have a tendency to sort of talk about, you know, sellers in this king. But if I'm a buyer, I, I think I have more choice and the market's not running away from me. Yeah, I always get surprised when people are saying, oh, this is a terrible market. Well, just a minute, we are talking about people buying a home, buying a place for the kids to play, a larger yard, uh, you know, more space, uh, better deals. And what time do we want to do that? Now, when we have time to look around and realtors have time and 
And, and we know also that prices have come off maybe as much as a half a million dollars in Surrey on a, on a, in the last six months, over 400,000 in Vancouver. So now to me, for the average buyer, might be good time to start carefully looking, get a professional realtor that practice, practices his or her profession that doesn't practice on you. <laughs> then select an area you like, get the computerized price reductions every day, make lowball offers. I mean, investors can look for pre-sale assignments, maybe look at live work places that, that where you could have an Amazon warehouse from a movie set to a hundred opportunities that I always talk about in my Osbaz. This is your market. Mm-hmm. And, and let me go a little bit further, more refined. What about Christmas time? Well, the interesting thing is you and I talked Christmas time probably 25 years. You know, I, I know that years and years ago, I came back from the Philippines uh, very full of myself. I'd had a great year and I came back in mid-December and the market had come to a total stop, you know. And so I I didn't know what to do. All I knew was I was in the office at seven in the morning and left at 10 at night, you know, trying to generate business. Well, on the 22nd of December, I sold two properties and between Christmas and New Year, I sold three properties. You know why? Because the person that comes looking between Christmas and New Year, they are likely from out of town. They got to buy. They're your best kind of kind of buyer. So as an owner right now, I, I would make sure I got my Christmas lights on. I got the tree on. I got a cinnamon stick uh, boiling uh, on, the, on the stove for a good smell. I offer maybe some cookies for a realtor open house. This is a good time to actually make an effort because a lot of realtors and a lot of people just close down for the holidays. Well, and the other thing that you've said, uh, you know, for your entire career, that even when you get a slowdown, remember, if they say, for example, uh, you know, X amount are selling and X amount aren't selling, well, you just want to be in that selling part if you're on the seller's market is what I'm saying. You're so right. I mean, so so about 50% sell. How do I get into the, the 50% that do sell? And maybe I have to maybe offer a special bonus to realtors. Or as, as one of our clients did, he offered a, a small SUV as part of the price. And you think, well, that's ridiculous. Well, not really when you consider that so many offers now are 50 to 100,000 below what people are asking. That might just be the thing to lift you out of the crowd and become memorable. Interesting. Very interesting. Hey, I, I'm going to come back to a, a little question about buyers in a second, but uh, I, I know that I had sort of thrown this at you earlier in the week. You said you'd give me an answer. And what's the most asked question you're getting right now around the real estate market? It's how long a period should I go fix my mortgage? I, I, mm. I, I do a lot of presentations and Christmas parties and so on, and people are really confused. Variable, long-term, this and that. And I mean, for investors, I always say, go for the length of time that you intend to keep the property. If you want to keep it for a year, don't go long. If you want to keep it for five years, well, go long. But for homeowners right now, in my view, and this is a personal opinion, you have to make, people have to make up their own mind. But in my experience is that a U.S. president, when he gets elected, that election year is always a low in the interest rate cycle or very often. So today I would go for two years or maybe six years if I wanted to stay longer because I also think that rates may be better in 2025 than they're now. So just just a, an offbeat because nobody knows what rates are going to do. It's a surprise to everybody almost every time our central bankers come on, on air. But I, I, would, I wouldn't go um, in between. I would go for two years or six years. Well, and I'm just hoping to be around in 2025, by the way. So my mortgage will be the least of my problems, Ozzy. Hey, I'm going to finish with this, though. And it's something I got off of ozbuzz.ca. And that is uh, how popular 
Canada's become on Chinese search engines? And I got a question to follow up, but you're the one who sort of let me know on that. Yeah, no question. It's funny that Chinese search engines have a massive increase in inquiries on immigration into Canada. So the most popular internet search engine has experienced a 28 times surge uh, when people uh, type in conditions to immigrants to Canada, right? So people are looking and they want to get away from oppressive regimes. They want to go to an area where we have safety in, in, in our legal system, where we have safe banks. And Canada is, is, is going to be most desirable, even if we're going to close down the, the, uh, the, the, the investment in, in residential real estate. Because a lot of the buyers that come, well, they might buy a commercial real estate, but the most important thing is they come for our lifestyle, our, our kind of uh, life that we're offering uh, for people to re, renew their, their own situation. Just one quick thing about that. In the last federal budget, they talked about some sort of restriction on foreign buying, you know, and I haven't heard anything since. I don't know what the heck's going on. Well, you and me and every realtor in in Canada, uh, everybody has been told there's a $10,000 fine if you don't stay by the rules, but they don't tell us all the rules. The one big rule is no residential purchases allowed for foreigners after January 1 for two years. But they haven't said what it may, may mean to Whistler or to Canmore or anywhere else in Canada that is a resort-oriented. And everybody seems to think it's a Chinese immigration we're looking at. I think the U.S. looking with a huge, strong dollar, 30%, a decrease, uh, I mean, a better deal by buying in Canada, they're interested in Whistler. And right now, we have no regulation with 10 days to go. It's crazy. And you're talking, they're talking then foreign ownership but non-resident foreign ownership. Well, yeah, well, we have in, Whistler was exempt under the tax, you know, the, the foreign buyer's tax. So now everybody is wondering, does the no buying residential real estate apply to Whistler? And some people say yes, some say no, but the government that has to tell us hasn't told us. Yeah, in- incredible with the year end, you know, you know, ticking away there and penalties, you know, supposedly kicking in on January 1. Ozzy, well, that's great stuff. Uh, I'm just thinking, I don't think I chat with you. Uh, we're taking next week. Christmas week, we're not going to do a Christmas uh, weekend show, but we are going to do a year-end show uh, shortly after. So I won't be chatting with you till after the Christmas holiday. So I want to wish you and Joe the merriest of Christmas and your family. Well, and I have the same for you and certainly all of your listeners. And, and remember something, Mike, that Halloween is the beginning of the holiday shopping season, uh, but, but that's for women. The beginning of the holiday shopping season for men is Christmas Eve. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. Go to ozbuzz.ca, ozbuzz.ca. Hey, one of the things we talked about last week on the show was making charitable donations. And uh, one of the things that Tim Sesnick mentioned is something that sort of my last chance to tell you about this, and I want to make sure you're clear on it. You can make donations of shares. And if you've got a capital gain on the share, and I did this myself this week, then you donate it directly to the charity and they'll have a way and who they deal with is simple. You, you phone them up and say, how do I make an in-kind share donation? And you don't pay the capital gains though. That is highly advantageous compared to owning the shares, selling them, having to pay the capital gains and the money left over is what you donate. So I just want to remind you of that, that uh, think about that when you're making charitable donations at this time of year, you still have time. 
you know, we've got a few days left in the year, so you can take the shares directly. And if you've got a capital gains, it's more advantageous just to make a direct donation. You don't pay anything on uh, the capital gains. You just get the full value of the donation. And as you know, I'm very keen on helping people with Special Olympics. That's the group that seems to be ignored year in and year out. Maybe not as sexy as other causes that way. Certainly were ignored during the pandemic by governments. Uh, but you can make a donation to Special Olympics by simply going to uh, getbackinthegame.ca, getbackinthegame.ca. And if you're going to make donations directly, just phone up your particular charity, ask how are they doing it, and go ahead and do it. And if you have a capital loss, you still get to use it. So you don't pay the capital gain if there's one. You get to use the capital loss. There, enough said about that. Why? Because I've got Victor Adair waiting on deck for me with no shortage of things to talk about. Victor, I can just imagine how extensive uh, you know your days have been given the level of volatility. My goodness. Yeah, coming into this week, we knew there was going to be some rock and roll. We had the CPI number scheduled for Tuesday. Uh, Wednesday was going to be the FOMC meeting, sort of the last two big events of the week. And uh, kind of in second tier position was the ECB and the Bank of England meeting on Thursday. But uh, as things turned out, uh, I think the, the ECB meeting on Thursday was really the key event on the week. And yes, we did have a rock and roll week all together. I think the range from the high on the Dow, which was an eight month high uh, to the uh, low at the end of the week was about 2000 points. And there was lots of up and down in between there. Well, I talked to Mike Levy earlier in the show about, you know, obviously the 50 point half percent bump by the Federal Reserve, but being more hawkish than our bank was, you know, in their talk. But let's come back to the European Central Bank, because this is the one that I think caught a lot of people by surprise, that you got Christine Lagarde sitting there going, yeah, we're going to, if you think we're pivoting, you're wrong. We're raising it a half percent, then another half, and probably another half. Well, this is against, you know, a strong recessionary environment there that's against a backdrop of huge losses in the bond market. I mean, anybody who bought a European Central Bank uh, bond or any of the other makeup nations in the last eight years is underwater now. I mean, who wants to buy a negative yield bond if I can get a few percent anyways? And I think this is what, I, so I think that caught the market by surprise. Well, it certainly caught it by surprise when you look at how the markets reacted. I mean, we had the Dow Jones hit uh, an eight-month high following the CPI number. And if to make it really simple, the CPI falling, I mean, inflation falling, kind of the market read that as pretty soon the Fed's going to stop raising rates. So, gee whiz, we can go back to buying the stock market because that's what we would love to do. Uh, and the, the, the high there... Then two days later on Thursday, when the ECB was much more aggressive than the market was expecting, and we had the market fall hard. So that's what I mean that the ECB, to me, seemed like the key event for the week. I mean, it was unexpected. The, the, the ECB has always been softer and easier, and they want to look after everybody and not step on anybody's toes and so on. Has kind of been the feel relative to the Fed, where Powell has basically kept saying, you know, we're going to stick to this until we get the job done. If we quit too early, then inflation will come back and that'll be a way bigger problem. Now, the ECB was mimicking that kind of language. And that's when the bottom fell out of the stock market this week. Uh, back to what I was mentioning before, though, is that, you know, the stress financially 
in the Euro EU is higher than the stress in the financial system, you know, in the United States. And I, I think that also comes into play in some of the surprise. I mean, I was certainly surprised based on that. I mean, we know, for example, they've lost about 20% of German manufacturing because of the high energy prices. And the high energy prices hasn't, haven't played out as we saw last week when the wind slowed down. Boy, German energy, uh, Great Britain, that kind of stuff just rocketed up, uh, you know, the pricing to replace that wind power. I, I just think it's so much more fragile. And I guess the big question is they're all sitting around wondering, when is something more going to break? We did have the European, or sorry, the UK pension problems early in the end of September, but boy, that's what worries them, you know, and that's the big debate around how deep the recession is going to get. Is something going to break? Yeah, you know, to, to frame this again, Mike, I think for the past several months, the markets have been saying to themselves, you know, when are we going to hit peak Fed? That means when we get to get to the point where we know we're not going to get any more interest rate increases. I think that that the the big worry or the big concern in the market has shifted from that over to, hey, when are we going to go into a recession and how bad is it going to be? Certainly what you're pointing out is Europe seems to be much more vulnerable or fragile, to use that word, than, than America is or seems to be. And in the background, by the way, China, you know, whether they may have been hiding that they're already in a recession by the lockdowns, but certainly now that they're coming out of the lockdowns, markets expecting the economy is not going to be strong there. So we have this prospect of, you know, global weakness or, or let's say recessionary trends. And I think that is been manifest here. What we've got, if I could make it really simple, the Dow was at an eight uh, month high at the highs of the week here. We dropped uh, 2,000 points and we're, we have our weekly closes, the lowest close in six weeks. That's kind of, in a nutshell, shows you what happened to the sentiment and psychology in the market this week. Okay, very quickly, we're not going to do another show till after Christmas, Vic. We're coming into that quiet time of the year. Uh, I think the next time Money Talks is on is December 27th off the top of my head. But so we're going to not be around, you know, uh, through next week as it gets quieter. Does that change, you know, the fact that the, the year end kind of quieter times, people go on holiday, does that have you just backing off? Because it's sort of not, you know, the volume isn't there to give you a true reading on what's going on in the markets. Uh, yeah, to some degree. I mean, that also means the markets may be more vulnerable to a piece of news, uh, the lack of liquidity. Um, and I think it'll be a time also for reflection. I mean, I, I really do think we're having a, a like a sea change or a secular shift here from, uh, you know, we've gone through a couple of decades, it seems, of low inflation and low interest rates. And I think we're pivoting to the opposite of that. So as people go into next year, you know, they'll be doing some thinking about that. Just as an aside, January is usually the month when we get the most new capital flowing into the market and new capital coming in means we would put a bid in the market. You know, if we don't see that, because maybe a number of folks are getting cold feet with the, the way we're wrapping up the year here, uh, we'll see. Uh, what I do see, Mark, Mike, is that uh, you know the U.S. dollar hit a high in September, is down about 10%, and uh, a number of people are thinking, okay, this is it. We've had the big turn. Uh, you know, the U.S. dollar is falling. I think if we go into a recessionary period or worries about recession as we start the new year, that will put a bid in the U.S. dollar just on the basis of recession is going to hit the rest of the world harder than it'll hit the states. 
Well, we will be here to chronicle it. We are going to be back before the end of the year, as I say. But uh, in the meantime, Vic, I hope you and Gina have a wonderful Christmas, and we'll talk to you then. Well, thanks, Mike. And uh, Barney, our dog, is going to be joining us for Christmas as well. <laughs> well, that's going to be our family Christmas here. Well, make him a well. I don't know if he's a turkey fan. Get him a steak. Okay, Vic. <laughs> thanks very much. You bet, Mike. Hey, time now for this week's Goofy Award. You know, this past couple of weeks, Canada's premiers have demanded more money from Ottawa for health care, despite the fact that per capita spending, by the way, on health care is up over 25% in the last four years. But the premiers want more money. That's always the siren song that's been played, no matter what the problems within the system. So my question, I mean, do the premiers want to continue to do more of the same with that money because they give us no indications that they don't? What have we had, though? Increased wait times for treatments despite extra money added to the system. And come on. The health information study put us 11th at the bottom out of rating 11 Western countries when it came to timely care. The uh, Commonwealth Fund survey in 221 found Canada ranked dead last among the 11 developing nations when it came to receiving care within four hours of an emergency visit. Uh, dead last among the 11 when it comes to seeing a specialist within four weeks of referral. Boy, that's laughable. And dead last when it comes to non-emergency surgery after it's recommended. I mean, the premiers aren't talking about making significant changes, the change the system so blatantly cries out for. No, they want to get more money to do basically the same thing. No changes to a system that saw 11,581 people die waiting for treatment in 2021. Just like every other year for a quarter of a century, they're pretending that the problem is not enough money. Not the system itself, which literally provides no incentive in so many areas for actually treating patients. My personal favorite is British Columbia, where the government wants more money so they can afford to continue suing Dr. Brian Day and the Canby Street Surgery Center for providing private care to people like you and me who have been forced to wait medically unacceptable amounts of time. While politicians themselves don't have a waiting list, no, they jump it and they use private care. And by the way, including the judge who's uh, presiding over the Canby Street case. I mean, the hypocrisy is breathtaking and has been for years, but matched by the ignorance of way too many who don't seem to grasp that government policy to restrict access to care by making people wait medically unacceptable times is actually the policy. That's how they control costs, as they do by limiting the number of spaces available to train doctors, nurses, other medical professionals. I mean, we better start understanding that. We have got waiting lists for treatment because that's government plan to absolutely control uh, costs. So the premiers, along with the federal government, are far more interested. They give me no sign that they're not more interested in protecting an ideology of patients. By the way, I, I gave this quote this week, but it's, a, it's an example. A system that sees Canada with 10 times more health administrators. I mean, it's incredible. We have one for every 1,415 uh, citizens. But think about that compared to Germany. They've got twice the population. They've got dramatically shorter wait times. And they have one administrator for every 15,545. I mean, as I say, we got 10 times more. The determination to do more of the same, the lack of courage to implement the fundamental changes needed to the system. Heck, 
We don't have the courage to have the conversation. That's all I'm asking for and have been asking for it for 20 years because it was so obvious we were going to have a problem with making promises of unlimited access with limited funding. So yeah, I'm sending out a goofy to the premiers whose intellectual laziness is on full display. But you know, the other side, I'm going to all of us for demanding so little for allowing ourselves to fall victim to the tyranny of low expectations when it comes to our healthcare system. Now, that's all the time I have today for the show. We're not doing a show Christmas. We'll be back, I think, on the 27th or 28th. In the meantime, I'll be posting on Money Talks tweets. In the meantime, I'll also be uh, you know, on Michael Campbell's Money Talks on Facebook and mikesmoneytalks.ca. But also a reminder, as I said a little bit earlier in the show, this is your last chance for getting the silver coin and the VIP pass to the Outlook Conference, February 3rd and 4th. What a great Christmas gift. I always love that stuff, like the silver coins. You heard me talk with David Morgan earlier in the show. Got a bright future, I think, for silver, but it's more the fun stuff. It's a great gift. I keep saying that, but I know I've got lots of proof of lots of people saying it. And I think we've got our top lineup ever. And I think, uh, as I say, there's much to talk about. We will talk about it, but take advantage of it. Go to mikesmoneytalks.ca. Get your ticket for the World Outlook Conference. Maybe get one for a friend or a family member. All of that stuff. Anyways, in the meantime, it's my pleasure to wish you, wish you a very Merry Christmas. This is the Money Talks podcast with Michael Campbell. Available at mikesmoneytalks.ca or through your favorite podcast subscription service. Join us on Facebook at Michael Campbell's Money Talks and on Twitter at Money Talks Tweet.